0: Mahesh, you go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. And as you do, in the closing week of 1999, which is hard to believe that was 20 years ago, (laughs) when we were preparing to close out the second millennium and enter into the third millennium, or to survive Y2K, I'm glad y'all made it. Uh, One of the best selling and most popular newspapers in the United Kingdom published the results of a poll that it had sponsored asking readers to name the most significant man and the most significant woman of the past millennium. So, the last 1,000 years. The most significant man, most significant woman of from AD 1000 to AD 2000. Take a moment, maybe in your mind, kind of think over that 1,000-year period of time, who would have the winners be? Who would be the most significant man? Who would be the most significant woman of that period of time? Well, the results that came out show that the results were Nelson Mandela and Princess Diana. Now, clearly, these are two significant and iconic figures of the second half of the 20th century, but... What about the previous 950 years? I mean, it can be debated that were they really the most significant people of the second half of the 20th century, much less the thousand years, but we're talking about like 950 years prior, we're talking about a thousand year period of time and we're not here to answer that question. But what a survey like this shows us, what it reveals is that most people don't know that much about history, if we're being honest. In, In truth, we don't know that much about our own history you know, if we, if we started going back, if I asked you to, to, to list your family tree, starting with your parents going backward, most of us, truth be told, are not gonna get much further than our grandparents or great grandparents. And then if I say, okay, now write out the details, tell me the stories of each of them going back, then we're gonna know even less than what we think that we know. We don't know that much about history. And this goes for Christians and non-Christians alike. Historical ignorance is not, is, is, doesn't discriminate. It, it extends to all of us. We come back to it. But as Christians, we have a deeply vested interest in history, whether we realize it or not. As what we claim to believe is founded and deeply rooted in historical fact, And that means that your history, my history, our our collective history is found really in the pages of this glorious book that we call the Bible. Our history is found in these pages. And when I say uh, book, I'm speaking of twofold. One, I'm, I'm speaking of the entire Bible. One sense, the, the 66 books comprising one unfolding story. I'm speaking of, of this book. It's our story, God's story, our story. But I'm also referring to individual books. Like you start in, in Genesis. Genesis is a historical book that tells us where we came from and what went wrong. Then you move on to Exodus, being a historical book that tells us how God keeps the promises he made in Genesis and how he grows for himself, he develops for himself, brings about a great nation. Both of those books, along with Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses while being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's the book of Exodus where we're now gonna turn our attention to, where we're gonna begin this journey, a journey from slavery to salvation, and an incredibly important book for the Christian life. To the degree that I, I don't hesitate to say that I believe a complete understanding of the gospel actually requires us to have a healthy knowledge of the book of Exodus. You want to have a full knowledge, want to have a healthy knowledge of the gospel, you got to know the book of Exodus. And in some ways, the entire Bible is an extended interpretation of Exodus. I don't know how much time that you have spent studying Exodus. Is maybe the first time that you have ever walked through it fantastic. We're going to walk through it together. I encourage you to go home, read, figure out how, the, how it ends, and all of those type of things. It, it, what a wonderful book. Now, for those of you who have read it and know the length of it, I've already had the question, so Jeremy, how long do you think we're going to be in Exodus? <laughs> well, my response, not as long as the Israelites were in the wilderness. <laughs> but this is going to be a Lord willing, a great journey through one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. And I'm going to be honest, I'm I'm scared to death to preach this book because there's so much here. There's exciting stuff and there's stuff that seemingly is boring, (laughs) but it's all pointing us to Jesus. All of it. It's all pointing us to Jesus. So let's get started. Exodus chapter one, verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Ephetili, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now we're going to pause here, right here for just a moment after verse 5. But what we have really in these first seven verses are the beginning of what we see as an epic story. It's kind of like the beginning of a Star Wars movie. You know, in the beginning of a Star Wars movie, when the music comes on, da da, you know, and not really the sound, but it comes on, and and it comes on, and then the trailer kind of comes. I guess it's called a, a crawl that comes across the screen. That's kind of trickling across a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. What's that doing? It's telling us the context. It's giving us a backstory. We're about to enter into a story that's already taking place. And that's exactly what we have here in, in Exodus. We're entering into a story that is already in progress. Exodus being part two of a multi part story. So to bring you up to speed, kind of a a flashback, if you will, look with me to Genesis chapter 12. And if you don't have your Bibles with you today, I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you along this journey to be able to open it up and follow along for yourself. Um, We will have them up on the screen, but don't just trust what's on a screen. Screens can mess up. The word of God is where we want to turn our attention. We want to be in the word. So Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse one, I'm going to kind of break and pause, give some contextual background here. Now the Lord said to Abram, now who's Abram, Abram. Abram is Abraham before his name was changed to Abraham. He says to him, Abraham, go from your country. Now where's where Abram's country at this point in time? It's Haran, which is in modern day Turkey. And God said, okay, you're going to go from Haran. You're going to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now what's this land that he's going to show him? was the land of of Canaan, which is where we're going to know eventually is the promised land. That's where they're heading. So heading south from Turkey, south towards Canaan. And then he makes a promise. Verse two, and I will make of you a great nation. That's a big, big, big promise from God. And understand at this point in time, Abraham, if you're not familiar with the story, he is a pagan. He's not a believer in God, has no desire to be a believer in God, but God chooses Abraham to be the father of this great nation, which is poetic again, since Abraham and Sarah are unable to have children of their own. And it isn't until Abraham is 99 years old, which proves that God has a sense of humor. (laughs) Like I'm getting tired and I'm not even 40, like chasing a six-year-old around a house. Can you imagine that? This and he allows him then at this ripe old age to, to father Isaac. Well, the story goes on and Isaac fathers Jacob and Jacob fathers twelve sons in all kinds of different ways, which we won't dive into. But he fathers twelve sons who we're told their names in the beginning of this section. We just read them. And what, what did what did one of them do? Well, well, many of them do. Joseph was one of the brothers and the rest did what? They, they sold him into slavery. Sold him into slavery and now we fast forward 20 years or so and we find Joseph is now second in command of all of Egypt and has under the hand of God and the guidance of God led Egypt to store up large amounts of grain and food to survive the coming famine and when the devastating famine comes upon the land Jacob sends his older sons to Egypt to to buy grain long story short Joseph recognizes his brothers and ultimately has his entire family moved to Egypt so that they can prov- be provided for and survive this famine so they move from Canaan to from Haran to Canaan to now to Egypt And while Joseph's brothers are are scared now that Joseph will enact revenge upon them, Joseph looks them in the eye and he says in Genesis chapter 50, if you're already in Exodus 1, just flip back one page to Exodus chapter 50, verse 19 the last few verses here of Genesis. He says, do not fear for I am I in the place of God. He's asking him a question. Am I not right where God would have me to be? Like all these things that have happened in my life, I'm here because God has me here. Now, as for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And all of this shows us how Israel came to be in Egypt. Again, from Haran to Canaan to Egypt. And at this point, they consist of only 70 people. 70. Far from being a great nation, right? Like it's far from being a great nation, but a far cry, far cry from the woes of infertility as well. God's doing something. In the midst of all of this, God's plan is being unfolded. But then several years after this, just before Joseph died, he told his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, just a few verses later, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's a wonderful promise to which brings us to the end of the book of Genesis. And now we come back into the book of Exodus, verse six, then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation, they're all dead. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So, this opening contextual backstory, the crawl, if you will, it ends with Israel in a period of great prosperity. A family that started with a promise that God to an infertile couple has now grown into this great nation. They're no small family gathering anymore, they are a great nation, a reminder that our God is a promise keeping God. It tells us all over the pages of Scripture. We've seen it in previous series. We've seen it in previous books. Our God is a promise-keeping God. But as the drama continues to unfold, we realize that things are about to change. The time of great prosperity is now about to turn into a period of great persecution. As we pick back up the story in verse eight, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaohs store cities and Pithon and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So again, a period of great prosperity has now turned into a period of intense persecution. And it's circumstances like these that can lead Christians and non-Christians alike to begin to question God to wonder where God is in the midst of the suffering, to wonder where God is in the midst of the trial. But what we need to understand is that none of this, none of this has caught God off guard. We go back into our, our, our series through talking about God's providence through the book of Ruth. None of this has caught God off guard. God isn't distant and removed from the suffering of his people. In fact, all, it's all, every bit of it, a part of His divine plan, whether it makes sense to us or not. Just turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15, where God has made a covenant with Abraham. It's like a rock solid promise. See, Abraham didn't understand how God was gonna fulfill his promise to him. Didn't make sense. Like, how am I, a guy who cannot have children, how am I gonna be a father of a great nation? God, I don't understand All these things. God tells him to look up at the stars in the sky. Saying, trust me. Trust me. I promise it will happen. And guess what Abraham does? Abraham believes. He believes. But then look at what God tells Abraham after he believes. In chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So before the birth of Isaac, before the nation of Israel existed, God promised that this promised people who did not exist yet, would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And what's he also promise? That he will bring them out. He will bring them out. Which is exactly what Joseph reminds his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. Right before his death. And Exodus is the story that tells us how this promise was fulfilled. Exodus is this story. Now, of course, today we're just getting started on our journey. But even in these introductory verses, we have lessons that we need to learn. For example, we find ourselves, we're pretty cool with seasons of blessing, right? All of us are cool with the good times. Lord wants to bless us. Things are going to be good in our life. We're cool with that. Like we see in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. It's good times. It's fruitful times. I was going through this last night just kind of jotting down some extra notes and I'm reminded back to my seminary days. When in seminary, it was a very fruitful time in married housing for a lot of folks. And we would always say, man, like don't drink the water if you're not looking to have children right yet because it's It's everywhere. Well, then Leslie and I, you know, later on, as most of you know, we had still, you know, struggled with infertility, and we would be back on campus throughout the years of our marriage and for various reasons, and we avoided the water fountains like the plague when we were there. But then we would both find ourselves drinking from the water fountains and we would go back and think, well, maybe, (laughs) let's give it a shot. (laughs) Like fruitfulness, like from the water, I don't know. But anyway, you look back and like times of fruitful, times of blessing, it's like, yes. But now does, does that language remind you of anything? Does it sound familiar in any way, shape or form? It should, it should take your mind back to Genesis. It's a reminder of God's instructions to Adam and Eve in the garden. What did he tell them in the garden? It's like job description. Be fruitful and multiply. Like great job description. Again, the seminarians took it serious as Adam and Eve were, were God's people, right? In God's place, living under God's rule. That's the way that God designed it. God's people in God's place under God's rule. But because of their unwillingness to submit to God's rule, they being God's people were what? They were removed from God's place. But look what God is doing here in Exodus. He's creating for himself a people. Not just two, but a nation. A people. Remember, Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, so the whole world, all earth, was filled with God's people in God's place under God's rule. That didn't happen. But what is God doing now? He is creating for himself a people who will live in a land that he is preparing and they will live under his rule. A people of impossible beginnings. They're living under the effects of the fall. They're fathered by an infertile, formerly pagan family. But by the grace of God, they are now experiencing great blessing. And again, these are times that we're like, oh man, God is good. God is so good. Look at all God has done. Oh. But notice how we're we're quick to profess God's goodness in times of blessing, times of prosperity. But not so quick during times of trial. Rarely do you see a, a Facebook post or a prosperity gospel preacher speaking of how good God is in the midst of a great trial. You don't, you don't hear that in the midst of, of suffering. What we're prone to do in those times, and we're all in this spot, every one of us, we're prone to have those moments of questioning. Why? Doubting, wondering, where is God in the midst of, of, of our suffering? Why? Why? I don't understand. And again, if you're there, If you're not there, you will be there. At some point in time, we've all been there. It's a natural part. But We need to to learn how to think biblically in those times. See, we often see seasons of blessing and suffering as two separate things. We see the blessing, okay, God loves me. The suffering, I must have done something wrong. That's kind of the way we, we kind of put them into these categories, but what these first 14 verses remind us or really teach us is that blessings and trials often go hand in hand, they go together. We see it all over the Bible, people living under the blessing of God while at the same time experiencing great trial. So what I wanna do in the time that we have remaining is to look together at four reminders from these 14 verses in the context that they're flowing out of. Number one, don't forget the blessings of God in your life. Don't forget the blessings of God in your life. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this message, we're, we're a people in general who don't do well at remembering history, not even our own history. And, this, and the reason is because we're so easily distracted by the here and now. We're distracted by our present circumstances and we forget we forget the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. We, we forget his faithfulness in past trials. Well, we've seen him bring us through, we've seen him deliver us, we've seen how he is working these things for our good, but then we're in the midst of something else and we forget. Why? Because the immediate becomes our primary focus. It's all-consuming. But what these first 14 verses do is remind us that sometimes, sometimes blessings and trials go hand in hand. Remember God's promise in Genesis chapter 12? God's promise to make of himself a great nation. Yeah, that promise right there, that's what's being fulfilled in these opening verses of Exodus. And when the suffering begins, the blessing doesn't stop. Do you notice that? Circumstances change, but what doesn't change? God's people don't stop being God's people. And let's not forget the context of this book. I'm not referring just to the immediate context and situation here. I'm referring to the context of the first readers of this book. Who are those first readers? Well, they're likely the second generation of of Israel. The second generation of Israelites living in the wilderness during the the Exodus, after the Exodus. So not to spoil the ending for you, but Israel's going to get out of Egypt, all right? They're going to get out of Egypt, and when they do, it won't take long for them to start complaining and bickering and crying and complaining and whining about the circumstances. And they're even going to ask, Lord, send me back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves than to be out here. And that's crazy short-sightedness. And I am just as guilty. Crazy short-sightedness. And as you can imagine, this doesn't make God happy. And he's going to say to them, the whole first generation of Israelites, paraphrasing here, the people who who saw me bring them out of Egypt, experienced me bring them out of Egypt, they witnessed the plagues, they witnessed the parting of the Red Sea, like cool stuff, right? Stuff that people today are like, man, if I was just there for that, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. They didn't. All of this, who experienced, they're all going to die out. They're going to die out. Won't be able to enter into the promised land. So second generation comes along. They didn't experience the Exodus or most weren't old enough to to remember the Exodus. All they remember is wandering in the desert. That's the the predominant here and now for for them. So imagine them reading and hearing Moses say, so we, we came up, we came into Egypt. We were only 70 people. Remember, 70 people. But look around you right now. We're in the millions. Wow. Because God blessed us. He's reminding them of God's blessings. It's a reminder that their fruitfulness was a blessing from God. Their very existence, we're talking about these small things here in some respect, but they're huge. Their very existence is because of the blessing of God. They're called the people of God because of the blessings of God, but nothing else. It's a reminder that our very existence is the result of the blessing of God. Our families, our children, our friends, our church family are all the result of the blessings of God. All of them. Yes, there are going to be trying times, but we cannot miss the forest for the trees, Don't forget or fail to see the abundant blessings that God has lavished upon you. Don't let the enemy rob you of that joy. And if we are in Christ, if we are a child of God, let us not forget that we are are a child of God because of the blessings of God. Number two yes, we Christians will suffer. Yes, anybody who says otherwise does not know the Bible. Christians will suffer. And our suffering may or not be because of anything we've done. And a lot of times it's nothing that we've done directly. Notice how Israel's suffering suffering is not deserved. At least in any particular sense here. It's actually coming as a result of the blessings of God. Did you catch that? The, The blessings of God being what? that they were fruitful and increased greatly, right? They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All of that, the blessing of God. They've done nothing for this. God has done this. They've just been fruitful and multiplied because of the blessing of God. And now this new king over Egypt feels threatened by their vast number. And what's he do? He enslaves them. So it's their fruitfulness that actually results in their slavery, It's their blessing from God that results in God's promise from Genesis 15, the promise to be enslaved for 400 years that is being fulfilled. Yet in the midst of the affliction, what do we see? Yet more blessing. More blessing. As verse 12 tells us, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So what do we have here? We have simultaneous blessing and suffering. Isn't that exactly what we see from the persecuted church around the world? In some of the places of the greatest persecution, where the church is having the greatest persecution, the gospel is actually advancing the fastest. But what do you think the Israelites noticed more? Their blessing or their suffering? They're suffering. They're no different than us. Why? Because that's their here and now. That's their present reality. No doubt wondering what in the world have they done to deserve this? When would God deliver them from this bondage? When? And that may be you today. That may be you today. It's the start of a new year but all you feel is the oppression of the enemy. You just feel weighted down, you feel beat down. Not an enemy in the form of of a king of Egypt, but in the prince of darkness who is looking to steal, to kill, and to destroy. See, I think there's a reason Moses uses the word king here and not Pharaoh like we'll see used throughout the rest of the book. Because like Satan, this earthly king wants Israel to see him as sovereign. He wants to destroy the blessings of God and the people of, of God, but he can't. He can't. Again, notice how his oppression doesn't stop God's people from receiving God's blessing. Their circumstances have changed, yes, from part prosperity to persecution, but they're still God's people. That isn't changing, and they're still receiving God's blessing. Pharaoh can't take that away. And neither can Satan take that away from you if you're a child of God. Cannot. Cannot. But the oppression can make it hard for us to see the blessings. It can make us hard to see the forest for the trees. And if he can't take away our blessings, he will fight to rob us of their joy in the here and now. Church, we must fight to keep that from happening. So what do we do? Number three, remain faithful in the midst of suffering. There is absolutely nothing the Israelites can do to change their circumstances, nothing. They would if they could, just like we would if we could. Oh, what well, we wouldn't give to be able to change our circumstances, to, to have a switch and to be like, man, let's turn this to another circumstance. We would take that in a heartbeat, but well, we can't always do that. So, what do we do? We remain faithful to live and to do what God has called us to do. We do what we can to continue to produce fruit. Do what we can to continue to produce fruit. Again, look at the Israelites. Can't change their circumstance, can they? So what do they do? They continue to do what they can. They continue to live. They continue to have babies. They're being fruitful and they're multiplying. And here's the application here for us. We may not be able to change our circumstances but we can continue to live and follow Christ in the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves. We can. But then I hear, Jeremy, I hear that. But I'm gonna be honest, I don't have the strength. I can't do that. It's gonna sound contradictory, but you're right. We cannot produce fruit in our strength regardless of the season we're in. Here's the problem though. When we're in the good seasons, the blessing seasons, those things are things like things are going all, all well and just rainbows and roses. We're like, we wish we'd have more of those, right? You're not pressing into prayer. You're not pressing into God like we need to. Like, I need you. But what does suffering cause us to do? Dial 911. God, I, I need I cannot do this without you. I need redemption. I need salvation. I need you. That's why God has given us the Holy Spirit. And that's why we must remember that when we feel like we can't go on at Christ, That Christ is interceding right now to the Father on our behalf in every moment of every day, ensuring that we will persevere in the faith, that we will not stop believing, that we will remain faithful. Oh, church, how many days I have just had to rest there. Rest there. Thank you. Thank you. So what do we do? We get up. Sometimes it's hard to get up, isn't it? We get up and we go to school. We go to work. We're faithful in everything that we were called to do in those places. We get married if we can get married. We have babies if we can have babies. We teach our family the ways of God. We make disciples. We live. We live. We faithfully live. We faithfully do everything we can do for the glory of God, regardless of our circumstances. You know, this is the application for the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. This is the application for the Israelites in the exile that takes, later, takes place later in their history. This is the application for the Jews in the midst of the Holocaust. This is the application for the slaves of the 1800s here in America. This is the application for persecuted Christians around the world. This is the application for each and every one of us. We may not be able to change our circumstances but by the grace of God we can remain faithful in the midst of our circumstances remembering that if we are in Christ we are not slaves not in the bondage to sin and death sins no we are children of God We are co-heirs with Christ and we have been bought with a price we cannot afford and redeemed from the bondage of sin and death once and for all. And no circumstance, however difficult, can change that reality. Rest there, church. Rest there. But what those difficult seasons remind us over and over and over and over and over again is how desperate we are in need of a Savior how desperate we are in need of a redeemer. Number four, continue to trust God in the midst of your suffering. Again, remember who the original audience of this book was. The second generation of Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They haven't received the promised land yet, right? They want to, but all they've experienced is wandering. And God is telling them through this book, just as he's telling us, my promises haven't failed. Remain faithful and trust me. And church, church, understand this. Understand that the hardest part of your story, the most trying part of your story, the scariest part of your story is not the end of your story. It's not the end of your story. Look at how bad the circumstances are for Israel right here. Look at them. I mean, in just the next set of verses that we're going to look at next week, we see that the king of Egypt orders that all the sons of, of Israel be born, who are born, that they would be killed. That's what we see. It's horrible. But this isn't the end of their story. Just like your present isn't the end of your story, your present situation is not the end of your story. So when you find yourself in a season of trial, ask yourself this question. Do I believe that God brought me into this trial so that he can bring me out for his glory? Do I believe that God brought me into this trial so that he can bring me out for his glory? Again, see the bigger picture here. Bigger picture of the story. God brings Israel into Egypt to eventually, in his timing, draw them out of Egypt to fulfill his purpose for his glory. But it's in this prolonged season of oppression and suffering, and we're talking 400 years, longer than this country has been in existence, that God grows them into a great nation. So could it be? that God is using your present circumstances or future circumstances to grow you into the man and the woman that he wants you to be, drawing you in to draw you out for his glory. In reading this, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in chapter 14 of Acts, where after being stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead for preaching the gospel, For preaching the gospel. He stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. He rose up and went back into the city and did what? Began preaching the gospel again. Like, that's my boy. That's my boy right there. And then he left and he went on to other cities to encourage the believers there to do what? To continue in the faith. He says, it's worth it, man. It's worth it. Saying that, and he's telling them, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Not something we want to hear, but it's the reality. Just as it's through suffering that the nation of Israel will enter the promised land, it will be through suffering that Christians will enter the kingdom of God. But don't forget this we will enter. We will enter. And how can we be sure that we will enter? because Christ suffered and died for us. And that's what we're reminded of every time we come to the Lord's table. Every single time. We're reminded of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for us. We're reminded of of, of the blessings of God upon our lives. So many blessings. We're reminded that sin and death were defeated at the cross. Oh, great blessing. We're reminded of Christ's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. When we have not been faithful, he was faithful. And we're reminded that God keeps his promises, that he is a trustworthy God who is preparing a place for us. We will one day be gathered together as God's people in God's place under God's rule for the rest of eternity. And oh, how I long for that day to come. So if you're a follower of Christ today, When I'm done praying, I want you to take as much time as you need to reflect upon these truths. Repent of your sin, give him thanks for the blessings in your life, and come to the table in reflective celebration. You're going to find two cups, one stacked upon another, one containing the juice and one containing the bread. Just take both right out and and go back and partake of the elements. If you're not a follower of Christ, we're glad that you're here. And if you have questions about anything that you have heard today, I am happy to sit down and talk through any questions that you may have. But I want to call on you to believe in this Jesus, to believe in this Redeemer, to, to call on this Redeemer to redeem you from sin and death. But we do ask that you refrain from taking of these elements as they are reserved only for repenting Christians. Let's pray together. I'm so thankful for the gospel. Even here in these first 14 verses of Exodus, we're seeing the gospel just jumping off the pages. And we say, Thank you. Oh, Lord, thank you. So many times that we can feel overcome by the oppression of this world. That we fail to see the forest for the trees. We we fail to see the blessings all around us. We fail to even see who you are. Thus, sometimes the trivialness of our prayers. But we are not praying to a trivial God. We are praying to you, the one who created all things, sustains all things, delivered your people from Egypt in miraculous, amazing ways. You who sent your son to live and to die and to literally rise from the dead. Lord, we say thank you. Have your way, O Lord, from the preaching of your word.